thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. The Real Food Real is a fresh and educational podcast dedicated to your health. We get real on current research, debunk food myths, and educate you on how to just eat real food. Your host, Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist, is one of Australia's leading sports nutritionists, passionate about simplifying nutrition and addicted to coconut lattes, smoothies, and sweet potato. If you love the show, then please leave us a review on iTunes. Share the real food real with your friends and continue to spread the real food love. In episode 163 of The Real Food Real, we are joined by Angela Pfeiffer, a functional medicine, nutrition and health expert and an accomplished speaker and radio personality. Her 25 years in the health and fitness industry and the past 12 years as a functional medicine nutritionist, focusing in the areas of digestive health, functional gut disorders, thyroid, autoimmune and small intestine bacterial overgrowth have earned Angela recognition as the go-to gut expert. In today's episode, we explore SIBO, why Angela prefers the term small intestinal bowel overgrowth, the potential causes of SIBO and how SIBO is a secondary condition and must be treated in this way. You will learn the significance of food fears, stress and anxiety, and so much more. Let's welcome Angela to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Really looking forward to chatting with you today. Now, I wanted to give you the space first off the bat to introduce yourself and share with us a little bit about your history and what you're currently doing. Oh, I'd love to. I'd love to. So I am a functional medicine nutritionist, and I'm up in the Seattle, Washington area of the United States. Um, I have been in practice for pushing 13 years now. Um, I graduated from a university uh, called Bastyr University, which is luckily literally in my backyard. I could I could be there in five minutes if I if I needed to. Um, so I was very lucky to have such a great university here. Uh, you know, my first love was really psychology. I was on the path of getting my PhD in psychology, and I had this realization that medical doctors, you know, probably push in above 99%, uh, don't get any kind of nutrition uh, education. And I feel like if you're going to be a doctor of any kind, you really should know nutrition and you should know the gut. Um, I think we really can't compartmentalize. And so it was just one of those about face <laughs> faces that I did. Uh, went down a completely different path. Uh, um, you know, I didn't have a, a big illness that kind of led me to alternative medicine. I just uh, had that whole experience where, oh my gosh, there's this huge niche and people need this. And um, obviously, I'm so thrilled that I did. Uh, you know, I, I work a lot of hours. I work a lot of weekends. And this is my hobby as much as it is my job. And um, I, I, you know, my, I, I relax by reading medical studies. <laughs> so it's my, it's my passion. Um, and I think, you know, what a, what a great um, background to be able to help people that are definitely in more of, um, you know, just chronic presentation in terms of how long they've been dealing with things or, uh, you know, all the, all the, so the habit forming that we need to work on with people. Um, so, you know, having a psychology degree and background and then also um, the medical degree. Um, so, um, oh gosh, I've been, I've been working with uh, functional gut disorders from the absolute get-go um, and really changed focus to focus on SIBO probably about five, six years ago. Um, it's my main focus, my main drive, my main passion. I just love doing it. Um, I also have a, um, I launched in the States, unfortunately, we don't ship out outside the States, but I launched a bone broth. Uh, product under uh, under the name of gut rx gurus and it is um, a low fodment uh, fodmap excuse me uh, low fermentable bone broth and the first commercially available so that's pretty cool um, and then i have my um, website that i launched about a year year and a half ago um, that's called gutrxgurus.com and it is really just a it's a meeting place for people to come to learn more about the diet and to um, figure out how to navigate that and to really um, be more comfortable with things that they need to do um, and not be so um, anxious driven, which I know will lead into our topic today, but not be so anxious about exactly what they have to do and exactly how they have to eat and 
freaking out about doing everything to the nines because they're worried about messing up their, uh, you know, recovery. Um, so I really, it's a, it's a, it's a calm, happy, upbeat place. <laughs> so, so that's me in a nutshell. Beautiful. And yes, yeah, so much I want to, um, dive into with you today. And obviously SIBO is a, a big specialty of yours. And, um, We've spoken about this topic a number of times on the show, but I just wanted to, I get, I guess, get a um, bit of a summary from you just for, for context. So if you could tell us just a little bit about what SIBO is and the common symptoms and, you know, maybe oh. anything else that you kind of feel is relevant to set the scene. Go for it. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So um, SIBO is small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Um, I think it better terms small intestinal bowel overgrowth um, because it's not all um, bacteria that can overgrow in the small intestine. Um, I think it's, you know, even better coined as dysbiosis in the small intestine, um, oftentimes brought about by a motility disorder. There's a lot of things that can interfere um, with motility in the small intestine. Um, other times people can have adhesions. And there's some other conditions that can, you know, kind of lead to it as well. Um, we're, we're not sterile in the small intestine. I really hate the word sterile, but coming anywhere near the small intestine because we have, you know, in, you know, organisms present there in parts per million in the, you know, a milliliter, you know, which is like a teaspoon of fluid. We, we aren't sterile. And yet if you compare that to the large intestine, it's just night and day. How much is, you know, how many organisms reside in the large intestine? So. Um, you know, we really want to look at SIBO as an imbalance. Um, it's definitely a secondary condition. It's not a primary condition. So it's, it's set up by other things. Um, we, we don't, we haven't gotten to the root of what's going on because we have a SIBO diagnosis. SIBO is, is like a starting point. It's like, oh, you have SIBO. Well, gosh, what set that up? We've got to look through and figure out what is affecting motility and how did the person get to be in this place? Um, and then try to unravel that, you know, if you will. So I really feel like it's more of a dysbiosis rebalancing that we have to do for people um, and, and really um, investigating and figuring out what set it up in the first place. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. Um, you know, being that secondary condition, um, I'm sure you've seen it, I guess, being treated quite a lot in that primary sense. So talk to us more about what your experience is with some potential root causes and I guess why um, or what we need to change from a treatment point of view due to that. Yeah, um, there's, there's a lot of things that can really set this up. Um, hypothyroid can affect motility. Um, gastroparesis can affect motility. Um, interruptions with the migrating motor complex. Um, Post-infectious IBS that uh, where people get exposed to a pathogen and create an antibody to that toxin. Sometimes that antibody can cross over and attack something called vinculin, which is a protein along the intestinal tract and really kind of an end communication anchor. So um, the migrating motor complex is signaled to come in and clear out debris. Um, sometimes it's a collection um, of, of different things that will set this up. Um, adhesions can definitely um, interfere and, and not really um, a direct migrating motor complex interference. But if you think about the small intestine as this long tube and you're trying to oscillate, you know, movements along it and I walk up and like grab the tube, you're not going to see movement past that. And you're going to see a backup of organisms at the place where you're, where, you know, things have really slowed down there. So, um, um, it can be caused by short bowel syndrome. Um, it can, um, if there's ileocecal valve um, integrity loss, you can get um, organisms backing up from the large intestine into the small intestine. So there's a lot of different things that can really set this up. That's not, um, um, and there's more things, you know, there's a long list. Um, uh, some people, um, you know, they can have a collection of things. Say they were on proton pump inhibitors for a long time, and they're also hypothyroid, which was never really addressed. Um, and they were already a person that was really chronically constipated for a long time where maybe motility wasn't where it should be. And you can see that start to present, um, in, in a patient. Um, I think the, uh, majority of people that get SIBO are probably more of a post-infectious IBS presentation where again, they get 
that exposure to a pathogen um, and get kind of that full foodborne illness exposure, recover from it. But then about three months later, they start to see some of those SIBO symptoms creep in. Um, and that's because, again, vinculin's been attacked. Motility is starting to fail um, to, to a degree. And uh, they start to get a, a buildup of organisms or a backup of organisms. Um, and then symptoms that really, um, gosh, it can vary. I think, um, I think the main thing that people, you know, pe people can get really chronically constipated. They can get, um, have chronic loose stool. Um, a lot of people get that kind of that basketball bloat after, you know, one hour to one and a half hours after meal. I think those are probably the most common. And then really it's just, it can be all over the place in terms of, um, symptoms set for people. And I think it really depends on, you know, what was already going on? Are they already an autoimmune um, presentation? And, or, you know, or were they, you know, they're more prone to migraine headaches in the past. And then all of a sudden you have the gut lit up and not happy and you're not digesting food and you're not as nourished as you can be because you have SIBA going on. Um, and then you, it kind of expresses other things or highlights or amplifies other things that were already present. Yeah, fascinating. And just from a, I guess, from a clinic point of view, um, to simplify for a moment, if someone comes in and they, um, let's say they're presenting with some of the key SIBO symptoms, um, do you test for that first? And, and how do you kind of explore the, um, the root cause? Yeah, oh, it's such a great question. Um, I will say with every patient I have, my goal at the start with them is to always disprove SIBO. Mm. Um, I think SIBO is overdiagnosed. I think it's overtreated. I see so many patients um, with a frontline treatment of an antibiotic and they never even had a breath test. They like they walk in and present with IBS-like symptoms and their doctor out of the gate is like, oh, let's just give you an antibiotic and see if that makes it better. You don't even know if it's SIBO. Um, it could be inflammatory bowel disease. It could be celiac. You know, it's, it's, SIBO can definitely be a, a diagnosis of exclusion. You know, we're going to rule out of a lot of things here, and not everybody gets that full workup. Um, you know, other times we start to look at things. Um, there's there's a, a couple of great studies out there looking at, um, a, you know, you know, very classic SIBO presentation, and they actually went through and did a jejunal aspirate. So they they did a a fluid sampling of the middle of the small intestine. It's very difficult to get to. Um, and they cultured it and they tested to see if people had, um, or you know, what, what they had, but they tested to see if they had SIBO or if they had SIFO, fungal overgrowth. And of those 100 plus subjects, a third had SIBO, a third had CFO, a fungal overgrowth, and not SIBO. And then a third had both. So basically, in two thirds of that subject group, you would have made things worse by giving them antibiotics. It's going to completely exasperate their fungal overgrowth. So I don't think, you know, as much as this test cost and the tests aren't perfect, um, we should not be treating this blindly. Mm. And if it does turn out that the, the choice is to go on antibiotics or the choice is to go on herbal antibiotics, we still want to know where you're at to know to what degree we're knocking this down as we test over time. Um, I don't, you know, I definitely don't put people on a protocol and test them first, put them on a protocol for a month, pull them off and test them, put them on a protocol for a month, pull them off and test them. We can kind of have an idea of where they're loaded at, um, how long they've had this, how chronic they've been, everything else that's kind of involved here. Um, we have an idea clinically just from experience how long they might need to be on a protocol and they might be on herbals for a couple of months before we pull them off and test them to see where they're at. But I think the testing is really important. Um, I don't think we should fly blind there. Um, and it's, it's important to look at those, really, really important. Um, but I really, you know, again, even, even if somebody has come to me uh, with two or three positive tests over time, and, of course, they come to me because it's not being cleared. Um, you know, commonly I see, you know, you know, I felt better for two weeks and then it came back. Well, it wasn't, it wasn't treated to where it needed to be treated. You still had SIBO. Um, you just had some symptoms resolve and then, it, you know, you started to see that flare. So I think we have to look at this case by case and see, um, is this truly SIBO and was it just not treated properly? Or um, like I've seen commonly, um, I've, I've, I have a lot, at least four patients in my head right now where they actually were um, an unmanaged uh, celiac patient 
who kept going, you know, all four of them in, you know, different places of the U.S., they'd keep going to their doctor and, like, complaining of, of uh, symptoms that were very similar to SIBO. Um, uh, two of them were known celiac in the past. You know, excuse me, known celiac. They had a celiac diagnosis. It was still present, of course, but they had, they had been diagnosed previously. And they kept presenting, and the doctor finally is like, oh, this must be SIBO. Um, you know, let's treat. And then they go down the road of all these antibiotics when their system was already autoimmune, celiac, not, you know, I mean, talk about, um, I mean, it's, it's possible that you can have celiac and SIBO, um, but let's first get celiac completely under control and see to what degree things resolve themselves to then say, do we need to come in and actually treat SIBO? Um, is it even an issue at this point? So I think that's really, really important. I've seen um, false uh, 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 positives on tests um, for people with celiac. And once we, you know, and it was, it was a typical, and I, I, my heart goes out to her because I'm thinking about her. Um, it's a typical, um, you know, I'm looking through what she's eating. And it's like, have you ever been diagnosed with celiac? And she's like, oh, yeah, I'm celiac. I'm like, probably something you want to put on your intake paperwork, right? <laughs> <laughs> and she's like, oh, no, no, I've taken care of that really how have you taken care of that she's like well i eat gluten free oh goodness so you know for, for anyone out there not not knowing um there's there's gluten free and then there's celiac and yes celiac um if you've been diagnosed with celiac and have celiac you do have to go gluten free but it is like surgical removal of gluten gluten free it's not just going out to eat and saying is that is that dish gluten free because you're going to get cross contamination Mm. Um, and then treating the autoimmune. There's a ton that goes into that. So, um, you know, we, we've got full resolution just addressing the celiac. And she's, you know, here six months out, it's totally fine. Didn't need to go through rounds of antibiotics. She needed her celiac completely addressed. So I really, I really like to look at that because, again, it's, you know, as much as, as much sometimes as people, well, the SIBO has come more into the forefront at this point. Very much so. And I think um, a lot of doctors are considering it at this point, And I love that. Mm -hmm. um, but again, I also think, you know, if they have a patient that's really complex in front of them that needs a ton of time and handholding, and they finally are like, ah, oh, I think you have SIBO. Here's the test. Here's an antibiotic. That's not really fixing SIBO. It's you, you could exasperate symptoms. You could make things worse is what set it up. Like there's so much more to it that we really have to get at. Yeah, beautiful. I love that you're so passionate about it. And obviously it always yeah. has to be about that root cause. Um, but let's sort of switch gears slightly to the dietary side of things. I just wanted to yes. get a bit of um, yeah, firstly context as to how you approach mm -hmm. the, the changes that you first make. Um, yeah. And then I'm really looking forward to talking more about, you know, food fears and, and, and how we, I guess, approach a diagnosis and a treatment plan. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so for, uh, and I want to say really quick, I'd mentioned the recipe site that I do, that I do earlier. Um, I don't, I have not put out a diet. I don't, I think that there's plenty of diets to choose from. Um, it, they, they all can start to get really confusing to people. So I don't, I don't have a diet that I put out. Um, you know, it's just, it's, it's more so a resource um, that I can, you know, get into a little bit later, but it's, I, I want to be clear on that. Um, I think, you know, anyone, it's funny, I was just talking to Rebecca Coombs um, right before we got on, and we, um, Rebecca and I are um, friends and colleagues. She's lovely. Um, and she and I were talking, and I said, you know, I think, um, you know, for her, even coming out two years ago and figuring out she had SIBO, the difference on the, on the, the, the level and load of information that is online is mind blowing. Like what's kind of come out onto the scene within the last couple of years. And so if you're a brand new person to SIBO and you're trying to make sense of all this, um, you know, going into the chat rooms and trying to get answers, it's, um, that's, it's great for support. Answers can be, uh, not, not maybe as much because, um, it's, there's so much conflicting information being presented. And even within one little discussion string, everybody's disagreeing on what they're saying. So it's, um, I think it can get really overwhelming for, for the patient. So um, I think a lot of people immediately when they have SIBO and they've already figured it out, they're reacting to foods. That's why they went to the doctor in the first place and they're like, what's going on with me? Um, 
I think they realize that they have to do something about the diet, but I think um, we have we really do people a disservice by instilling this fear that they have to go on a super restrictive plan or they're not going to fix SIBO. Um, it just is not what we see. It's not what we see clinically. It's not what we see in the studies. Um, it's not what we see with the breath test. It just it just isn't. Um, so I think you know how I approach diet, uh, especially you know as I'm working with somebody, I have them journal for five days, just eating as normally as possible when they come to me, and tracking their symptoms. So at least I get an idea of how often they're eating, the kind of kind of foods they're reaching for. I can see um, trends and all of that, and then I have them give me a list of what they can eat and a list of what they can't eat, um, and I use that their health history, um, getting an idea if there's issues with sulfur, getting an idea if there's issues with histamines, getting an idea of just, you know, you know, where they've been and where they're going. Then we get to put a plan together for them. And it's really, it's customized. We, we've got to look at it in that way because to me, the more we can keep in, the more variety we keep in, the more endurance, the better nourished, and the easier time they're going to have recovering. I think I see time and time again that people come to me after multiple rounds of treatment, they're on 10 foods, and they're reacting to those, and there's nowhere to go. Um, I see constantly where people have this huge fear around food um, that, you know, if, if, I, if they eat a food and they feel like this, you know, bubbly gurgly and they bloating, they feel like SIBO is actually growing on a Petri dish within their gut, and that isn't what we see because we have this rate limiting factor when we look at all this and that's transit time you actually whatever substrate is moving past those organisms it's moving past those organisms you aren't putting it onto a dish and letting it sit there for days on end um and so the small intestine does move forward as transit time um, um involved there and so it's it's not you know fermenting for hours and hours and hours and hours um, so I think it's, it's difficult for a lot of people to wrap their minds around that. People are really trying to, um, they're searching a lot and trying to figure out which diet is the best. And there's so much confusion out there over them. Um, I'd say, you know, just really quickly, there is a handful or are a handful of diets to choose from. Um, we've got the SCD diet, the simple carbohydrate diet. We've got the GAPS diet. Um, we've got the SIBO specific diet. Um, We've got the FODMAPS diet, and really the SIBO-specific diet takes the FODMAPS and SCD and combines them. And then she also, Allison C. Becker created that one, um, and she also um, adapts it a little bit with her clinical experience. And then we have the biphasic diet, which takes the SIBO-specific diet and puts it out in, in multiple phases. So I think, um, you know, as a practitioner looking at those, those all make sense. But if you come in and you're like, wow... Well, then we have the fast track diet and I'm sure there's more, right? <laughs> so I think as a, any, any patient, you know, lay person coming in and looking at that, like, oh my gosh, holy heck, how do, how do I make sense of all this? Which one's right? And anytime that they react, they think they're doing something wrong. Um, there's just so much stress over the diet piece. And I think it's, it's really doing people a disservice. Um, and, and, and using the word restriction, I think isn't good. I think using the word um, kill because we're not killing anything with the diet. We're just not. Um, the elemental diet is, is in a whole different realm. I wish it wasn't called a diet because I think that skews things a little bit for people. But the elemental diet is basically you just consume pre-digested amino acids and fatty acids. Um, and there's you know, a little bit of sugar in there um, that you just consume those and it actually is pre-digested so you get such quick and rapid absorption in the very upper part of the small intestine it doesn't move past into the um, further part down of the small intestine and into the colon. You give your digestive tract a little bit of a rest, and you do get to see some of that load of everything come down. It's not picking and choosing SIBO. It's just everything gets knocked down a little bit. But that's not what we see with the um, FODMAP diet. And I think the FODMAP is probably more, more of my go-to for a guideline. Um, I like to keep grains and starches in from the start. I think it's it's um, it's beneficial to the patient. Um, I really think that we have to keep the uh, colon and large you know large intestine in mind, and that we're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater when we start to limit everything too much, trying to evoke change with a small intestine when we're going to evoke too much change with a large intestine. Um, I don't put everybody on the same plan by 
means, but I, I think I lean probably on FODMAPs a little just more for guidance. Um, if somebody's fructose intolerant or lactose intolerant, um, it's really easy to look at the categories that have actually been tested, you know, through Menashe University there um, in a lab and, and say, we've got some good direction with what we can choose from that. So I think um, I, I really prefer that at least as a guide. Um, but if, if a food isn't causing a reaction, I don't pull it. Um, I don't, I don't understand that. Why, why would anybody pull it? Um, I don't find, I'd say even across the board that anyone with SIBO can handle garlic and onion. I just don't. Um, sometimes if people come to me and they, you know, again, have that SIBO test in hand and they're eating, yeah, I can eat garlic and onion and I'm fine. I'm like, this is something else. <laughs> We've got to figure this out because I just, like, it's, that's just such a, talk about taking like a handful of prebiotics with garlic or onion. That's just what they are. So, um, it's, yeah, it's just interesting when you start to look through it. Yeah, absolutely. And you can definitely see why um, someone that's given a diagnosis could be really overwhelmed because, as you say, there's sure. so many options and, you know, food's only a, a part of the equation. So I did want um, us to talk more about what that might create in, an, in, a, in a patient or in a client um, yeah. And then, of course, what actually happens when you're either becoming afraid of food or a, a wow. treatment program is um, so overwhelming that it creates anxiety? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think one thing to keep in mind is that food didn't create SIBO. The diet didn't create SIBO. So we can't look to the diet to kill SIBO. And I think that's really, really important. Um, when we start to look at um, anybody who has SIBO, there are, you know, um, you know, substrates within food that we will ferment and they will cause symptoms and reactions. But that's, you know, me going out and eating a bunch of garlic and onion is not going to set SIBO up. It just, it just isn't. It's going to, for people that have SIBO, it's going to cause a lot of digestive distress, but it's not going to make SIBO grow and grow and grow and grow. Again, we've got motility, things are moving past. So it's a, it's a reaction people will feel. Um, they'll, definitely, they'll definitely see a reaction with garlic and onion. Um, and um, they're going to be more sensitive to food on the other side of it. So if they go, if they get triggered at dinner, um, excuse me, if they get triggered at lunch and then eat dinner, even if it's a super safe dinner, they're going to feel like they get a little triggered. Um, and it might take a full three days for things to kind of reset. So I think that's where um, people can get really caught up in that emotional roller coaster of what they should eat and what they shouldn't and what that's doing to things mentally, right? Um, I think there is a, there's a huge emotional roller coaster with using the word kill and what that evokes, the idea of infection, um, and that the symptoms are linked to infection, right? It, I mean, it really places people in this helpless place, um, even, even of, I say with great respect and empathy for anybody there, um, they feel victimized from it like they don't they're they're like helpless they can't figure out what to eat and so um i think i think as they go down that dark hole it's kind of feeling like they can't move until they kill SIBO and then i think the diet gets um reined in too much at that point um people start whittling themselves down to too few of foods and it's really it's it's not good for their system um i think when we start to look at anxiety i think anxiety is really interesting because anxiety, um, which how can you not be anxious when you have a functional gut disorder? So again, this is with empathy, I say this, right? It's all of a sudden, especially for people that have never had any issues whatsoever. And like, literally, they woke up in November, and now they have SIBO. And they're like, what the heck? And everything they eat feels like it's triggering things. And you know, they're losing days at work, like it, it really, it really affects the life, um, people's lives. And so I, I appreciate that very, very much. So having someone not have anxiety with this. Um, but when we start to, you know, look at the studies, and especially when we look at post-infectious IBS, um, anxiety plays a huge, huge role and predetermining factor for people actually being at risk for getting infectious gastroenteritis, um, something like salmonella or giardia or campylobacter. Um, and it plays a role in that same population to then develop post-infectious IBS. So anxiety is one of, um, is, is something that is actually linked to that. Um, and we do see when we look at the studies that, you know, we can even step back. Anxiety and stress causes change, cause changes on our immune system. I think we can all agree to that. We can all agree that if we're under a lot of stress, we are going to be more susceptible to getting sick. 
We're going to be more susceptible to getting run down. We're going to be more susceptible, right? And so if you look at anxiety and its role with an increased risk for getting infectious gastroenteritis and then developing post-infectious IBS, it's the immune changes that accompany being anxious and stressed that put people people at more risk for getting that infection um, and then developing post-infectious IBS. So if we talk about the diet, like we can't, we, we, we um, can't put blinders onto that with this population. We have to be very mindful that we're not creating more anxiety in this population because we are literally um, impacting how they're going to manage the condition and how they're going to recover from the condition. It's going to do both of those because we see, again, if you're more susceptible because you're anxious, you can get another pathogen. Um, or if you're more susceptible, you're going to have a longer term, uh, longer time healing from this. Um, because really, if we look at the small intestine and, and colon, like, I mean, you know, majority of our immune system is surrounding that area. Um, and if that area is trying to be really um, uh, lacking um, or push, push towards um, a, a different immune pathway, which we can get into, it's, it's really, it's going to make the person more susceptible. Um, I've got a couple studies we can go through that I think would be really, really helpful in, in talking about exactly what anxiety will do to um, the, the body as a whole um, and the gut as a whole, um, if you'd like to. Yeah, I think that's super fascinating. And it definitely um, you know, explains why the food side of things yeah. is so important because so many people are put in this box of you can't eat this and it's this massive list, which obviously is, right. you know, a big part of the anxiety, yeah. which we know drives that further imbalance. So absolutely, mm -hmm. please share what some of the research is saying. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, I think it's part, you know, having a functional gut disorder, having um, the food um, piece triggering from all these symptoms, like just having to deal with all of it, um, I think can drive that anxiety. But then um, as any practitioner looking at a patient saying, aha, we have to completely restrict your food, and then people think they're still reacting to things, it just is load up on top of load, right? Um, so for the um, one study I really love, um, it looked at the differences in microbiota in immune cells in diversity, and also a HAD score, H-A-D-S score, which is a um, hospital questionnaire for anxiety and depression. And what they looked at was subjects that already had post-infectious IBS, and then they compared that group against people that just had IBS, so not SIBO. Um, and then they also had a healthy control group. And I thought was, what was so interesting is that the people that had post-infectious IBS had lower diversity, of uh, microbes overall. Um, they had more immune cell infiltration. They had more lymphocytes in their mucosa than did people just with IBS. <clears throat> and this was, this was at least a year after the initial on, um, insult, if you will, of getting that pathogen. So you would think after a year, things would have recovered. Um, but now these people, it's post-infectious IBS, they have SIBO. Um, and so they looked at the richness both of the fecal matter and then also of the mucosal and um, microbial, uh, micro, um, excuse me, microbial diversity. So they looked at both of those. That was, there were two distinct markers in there. Um, and what they found really was that the SIBO group felt more pain. They had more anxiety reported. Um, and anxiety was actually uh, correlated with the post-infectious IBS than it was with um, IBS. And so, so less diversity less richness, more anxiety, more pain, um, and more lymphocyte infiltration into the mucosa. Um, that was really what they looked at with SIBO. Um, and I think what was really interesting about this study in particular, and I can send you the link so you can share them with your, your uh, followers, um, basically is that the authors really looked at this and said, um, we should really be targeting um, uh, immune support to these patients. We should be looking, you know, per perhaps not, they, they didn't call this out, but they, you know, if I start to look at this, I'm saying, well, why would we look at SIBO and throw a bunch more antibiotics in there? We already have lower diversity. Um, and what the authors are looking at saying that this should really change how we should approach this. If this is, we've got more lymphocytes coming in and lost the diversity, maybe we should be treating this more with immune support um, and to try to regain that so the person isn't as susceptible to, in, um, um, uh, to getting a new exposure and getting um, having a new pathogen kind of uh, reaction there. Um, 
I think what's also interesting is um, they saw with the SIBO patients, there was, with that change in diversity, and this is, this is I want to highlight this too. Um, they actually did a fecal sample and they did a mucosal sample from the colon, not the small intestine. So I think this is really important to kind of call out here um, and why, um, why I think we have to be really mindful with the diet and not restrict people too much. Um, and, and mainly because when you're pulling as many fibers as some of the diets would have you do, you're going to start to decrease the amount of short-chain fatty acids that are being produced by a lot of the organisms that are, that are lining the small intestine and large intestine, but really those massive amounts in the, in the large intestine. And basically, the, the microbes that are in our large intestine produce short-chain fatty acids. It's a fermentation, which is welcomed. This is not SIBO. Um, it's a byproduct of them digesting um, indigestible fibers. And those short-chain fatty acids actually fuel the colonocytes. They fuel the, the cells that line our colon. And so I think what's interesting about this is that they've got post-infectious IBS. They see a lower diversity in the colon. They see more immune cell infiltration in the colon. They see their fecal microbial diversity down. They see mucosal micro microbial diversity down and anxiety up. And that's, those, are, those are big connections there. I don't think that we can really gloss over. So if you then take that group and say, aha, you have SIBO, I'm going to throw you on a bunch of antibiotics. I'm going to put you on a super restrictive diet. Then you're going to start to decrease the short-chain fatty acid production, which is going to do more alterations to the colon to begin with. And it's going to make them, again, more susceptible to, if exposed, having that pathogen become, you know, expressed and pathogenic. Um, so I think it's really interesting to look at that. Um, the IBS group was the opposite on everything. Higher diversity, less immune cell infiltration, less reported pain, good, uh, good um, richness of diversity with both the fecal and the mucosa, um, and their, their PAD score was inversely uh, related. So I think it's just interesting in, in, in looking at things like that. You know, we, we need to look at this clinically. Um, I think we need to be really careful we don't have blinders on and saying that, you know, we're, we're looking at the small intestine and stopping there. Um, I, I think we, we just have to do that. Um, I think the more the, you know, trying to figure out what kind of fibers people can handle would be really great. Um, I know in my practice, if I have somebody that's on a super limited plan and just seems like they react to everything, um, I have them get, um, Heather's tummy fiber, which is acacia fiber. Mm. And I have them just start with the tiniest, tiniest, like maybe a couple of grains, you know, and they'll add that a couple of times a day. And there's, there's, you know, we'll just start to, to bring up a, a fiber ever so slowly, um, again, as part of, you know, the overall overriding theme of what we're trying to do and trying to expand and heal. Um, we've we've got to be super mindful of that. I mean, this is just such a beautiful study that, that um, shows some pretty big differences here and that we might be, um, you know, really missing the boat if we're not keeping an eye on the colon at the same time. Oh, without a doubt. And that's one of the big problems, even with, you know, the prescription of a low FODMAP diet for other reasons, obviously the, the lack of the short chain fatty acids creates this vicious cycle, especially from an anti-inflammatory point of view, because we know that they're amazing for controlling inflammation, which is a big part of the mm -hmm. equation. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah, yeah um, exactly. Obviously with, um, you know, we do a lot of work with, biphasic as a template and obviously sure. the guidelines are around um, um, I guess yeah treating the client um, and their progression mm -hmm. based on the resolution of symptoms so we're not saying yeah. that you have to do it for a certain amount of weeks with no other foods it's all based yeah. on that individual prescription um, and there is the option for those fibers um, even if it is in that resistant starch form initially yeah, super important, obviously, for that diversity, which is that functional gut disorder. You know, it's as you know with SIBO, it's not just small intestine. So we need to make I agree. sure. We keep I totally agree. Mm, yeah, in mind. Yeah, and I, I honestly agree. And I'll say that um, I have no problem whatsoever with people. Um, and I'll say S SCD, um, I, there's, there's a lot of practitioners that are using SCD for SIBO. Um, a lot use FODMAPs, a lot use the biphasic and the SIBO specific. And I, I, I think we get used to using what we see works and we adapt it as we do. You know, this is what, why 
there's a little bit of an art to being in clinical practice. Mm -hmm. uh, and I have absolutely zero issue whatsoever with anybody walking somebody through a GAPS, I'm sorry, um, SCD regroup or a FODMAP regroup or a biphasic or SIBO specific regroup. And there is a timeline to it. I want you on this for a couple of weeks. I want you on this for three weeks. I'm going to expand here. And you like work and work and work. And within two months and maybe three months, you're back to, you know, you probably have your diet really cleaned up at that point because of what you're eating now. But you're, you're, you're expanding and adapting. You're working with somebody. You have a plan. You have a step-by-step-by-step -step -step what we're going to do. We're going to be looking at X, Y, and Z. Like that, I think that's all perfectly beautiful and healthy. Um, I think... You and I know that when people are trying to figure this out, probably on their own, but also at the at the discretion of their doctor, who is just giving them a you know blanket FODMAP diet and like doesn't go past that, like just says, "I want you on the FODMAP diet. Here's the antibiotics," and then they get stuck on it, and they're on there for month after month after month and year after year. I've had people on. I've had people come to me after being on it for two years, and they weren't. Oh. You know, I don't know that you can, I, I don't think you can, um, you know, I, th I think the FODMAP diet can be done. Um, I'm not going to say, I don't like people on the FODMAP diet long-term. I just don't. Um, I think well, that um, to be a long -term we can it as a style of elimination diet. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Yeah, exactly. But it's a, it can be, and that's really how I presented on our, our site, Get Our Ex Gurus. It's really an it's elimination diet for that group, and you know you can clean everything up if you feel like your symptoms are all over the place, and then um, settle things down for a couple weeks, and then slowly. Here's how you start challenging everything. Like, what can we bring back in? Um, if you know a food doesn't cause a reaction, don't pull it. That's my that's my whole um, take on it. Um, but sometimes people need a little bit of a regroup. So I just want to mm. say that because I I love neurology; she's awesome, and mm. I think the basic diet is good with a plan. Step by step yeah. by step. Um, so I just want to distinguish those two because I think it's important to do that. Um, but it's, you know, any of those diets, they should be done under the care of a practitioner because they are, I mean, you're altering a lot with that. And we need to make sure that people, you know, people aren't looking at that and going, well, I only like those three foods from the list of 20. So I'm going to stay with those for the next two months. Like it's like people really do kind of step into that because there's a lot of taste aversions and texture aversions sometimes with people. And I can appreciate that, you know, so I think um, really getting some help with the diet is, is so, so, so important. Um, Absolutely. No, I love that. I think, you know, really important to clarify, especially because, you know, some people are unfortunately still in the habit of going to see a conventional GP for a food mm -hmm. issue. Um, and they're given a list of things not to eat. And that yeah. is the worst way yes. to things because it is this huge list of every single food that's registered on yes. let's say the FODMAP scale from Monash yeah. Um, yeah. and they don't have the skills to work out what to eat so it's absolutely right. in reverse I feel right yeah no I completely agree I completely agree um, and I think it's I, I think that you know for a lot of doctors probably I'm just gonna guess here IBS um, has been um, a little bit of an enigma for a long period of time and so now that, that they have a test and they can actually see which patients actually have SIBO um, they can throw an antibiotic at it and I say that with respect they can throw an antibiotic with it put them on a diet they fixed it they're good and mm. I think I think you know the patients aren't calling again so I think they're fixed and they're stuck on the diet and it's mm. just not it's not a good place to be yeah for sure the last little area I wanted to explore with you was just on the treatment side of things with that conversation around antibiotics or herbal options if you could give us some thoughts there yeah absolutely um you know i always again if, we're, if we have determined this is indeed SIBO we have done all our due diligence and we have um really gotten the person to the place where we feel like the treatment is going to stick which i think is really important um, they're stable enough to go through it. Um, we've really figured out what else is going on. We're getting movement there and we're going to step into treatment. My, my absolute best recommendation is to do herbs first. Um, I really find somebody that can't handle the herbs. You know, some people can't, um, there's quite a few to choose from, so we can definitely make some adjustments if we need to, in terms of, you know, which we're going to choose from. Um, I think people probably seek me out because they don't want to do antibiotics. Mm. And so I don't, um, you know, it's, 
you know, think of like, you know, one, one in a hundred that wanted to do antibiotics and I'll absolutely support them. I'll give them all of my two cents and what I think, you know, what we need to do. And, um, if they do choose to do antibiotics, what I recommend again, based on their load is where their, their, um, breath test and gas load is to do a round of antibiotics, come down onto herbs. Um, and we'll figure out the timeline for that. And then it might just be a little bit of a kickoff of the antibiotics. Um, and so I'm not really, you know, I think antibiotics are lifesavers. I just want to really be mindful, especially you know, even thinking about that last study that we're, we're looking at this systemically. We're not looking at this compartmentalized. Um, and there's, there's more going on with the system than just SIBO and, and that an antibiotic to me is just going to fix it perfectly. Um, uh, with the herbs, um, honestly, um, I think um, SIBOinfo.com has the, a very, very good list of the different herbs that are used. Um, I will say I do not like blends to treat SIBO. I like to use single herbs at higher dosages um, to treat SIBO. I use blends if we have um, candida or SIBO involved. Um, then I start to think a little bit more about blends and then rotating those. Um, but it just, it just depends on the, the patient. You know, I always have people uh, take pictures of what they have in their cabinet, which is usually quite, quite um, uh, in-depth in terms of their, their own little catalog of herbs um, and, and supplements. Uh, and then I have them, you know, I, I, I want details. You know, what have you used to treat? What was the, you know, did you react to this? Um, did you feel better from this? Like, I, I really take a very detailed history on, on what they've used and really just learn from it and figure out what our next steps are. Um, you know, for any practitioner out there, I just be you know, really mindful. And um, we don't want to treat SIBO with blinders on. There's so much more going on than um, just SIBO. And if SIBO does need to be treated, um, and they've already been through multiple rounds of, of treatment, and they're not really getting better. Um, you know, we've, we've got to be mindful that we don't think that our, our well, our, our protocol is just the protocol that's going to fix this. Um, I, I, I hope that's so, but let's really make sure that we're doing our due diligence and figuring out if there's anything else going on, you know, that's, that somebody else missed, which I think is, is super important. So um, for herbs, you know, uh, it just depends on the person, Alimax, ADP, oregano, berberine, complex. Um, I think, you know, the herbs are the are fairly straightforward in terms of what we see work well, um, but it really, it's the, it's the um, plan that is the big one. And it's, I wish I could just copy and paste, but nobody can do that. <laughs> We're SIBO, there's, everybody is really different. What set this up? What else do we have to address? Um, and I, I feel like sometimes um, patients really come in waves for me. Um, I remember a time early on in my practice, I swear seven calls in a row, all of them were fibromyalgia. It's like, okay, I'm doing fibromyalgia now. Wow. Mm -hmm. uh, and then um, I'll, I'll say it's, you know, with SIBO and presentation, um, you know, I've, I've, for whatever reason, um, I don't know if just, you know, word of mouth, but I'm getting a lot of um, biotoxin illnesses on top of SIBO. Um, so um, like a lot of um, mold mycotoxin, um, we're figuring that out. And again, sometimes I just get a feel for it. You know, you look at somebody's history and they've been through the ringer. Symptoms are all over the place. They've been through some pretty good protocols for SIBA that should have taken the edge off at least. They should have, they should have seen some improvement. And you can just really <clears throat> start to see the picture painted that something else larger and is you know, loading the system that you have to really get to. Um, and so it's really, it's really good to go down that road if you, if you, to know enough to go down that road if you need to. Um, there's, a, there's a couple of great doctors I refer to for that. Um, and I'm a definite team player within that group. Um, um, and it's just necessary because some, some people have more going on and I don't want to be that, you know, one more practitioner to put them on a protocol that wasn't going to get to it because they've got a mycotoxin load or they've got a, you know, aluminum load that nobody looked at and their, their system just is having too, too hard of a time clearing. Yeah. So, so interesting. Such a fascinating area and you're an absolute wealth of knowledge. I'd love to give you the space now to direct our listeners to learn more about you and certainly those that um, want to learn more about SIBO and um, if, of course, they're looking for a practitioner to help them. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, my private practice site is SIBOguru.com, um, S-I-B-O-G-U-R-U.com, and um, I'd say that um, I have a 
a waiting list from time to time, but please get on that. Um, it's um, I, we try to get everybody in as you know as quickly as we can. Uh, my recipe site is gutrxgurus.com, so gutprescriptiongurus.com, it's plural. Um, and again, that's um, people do get a bit of access to me through that site. Um, I answer um, questions that are posted in the blogs, um, more diet related, um, definitely not how do I treat X, Y, and Z, because nobody can answer that over an email or mm. Facebook as I often get contacted with a full, here's my case. Um, you know, we, we really need to be able to sit down and ask questions um, to, to get at the crux and, and look over health histories for that and labs for that. Um, but GetRxGurus is, is, to me, just it's such a great resource. If I may say so myself, uh, we, um, Rebecca Coombs, um, fantastic recipes are in there. Um, she's a, an honorary guest guru for as long as she ever wants to be. Um, and I co-created that with um, a dietitian up here, um, Selva Wogelmerth. Um, also out of last year, and uh, there's over 800 FODMAP recipes, 180 are SIBO specific. Um, all of Re uh, Rebecca's are, you know, um, uh, classified for biphasic. Um, so it's it's a really great resource to start to make sense. So people don't just have a list, you know. Um, I think the list is, uh, you know, obviously nice to have, but it, and and a, a few recipes are nice to have, but I think be, to be able to put a meal plan together and kind of get help with how to adapt recipes, I think is just golden. Um, we don't do treatment on there. This isn't about um, you come in and tell us your case and we treat anything. So I want to be really clear on that. It's a safe, comfortable, relaxing place to learn more about the diet and actually get to taste super healthy food that will nourish you and um, help you manage your, your body and life and health while you go through this treatment. Beautiful. So I'll pop all those links in the show notes, including um, the links to the research that we discussed in today's episode. So definitely head there, team, to, to find out more. And Angela, it was so great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for your passion and certainly your dedication to this area of functional health. Oh, thank you, Steph. I appreciate it. Great thank talking you. with you. Yeah, thanks so much. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.